Hello, welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. I want to give a shout out to all the podcast listeners out there who attended last week's North American Ornithological Conference. The conference was held online, virtually, this year. But what it means is that it was easier than ever for those of us sort of in the the larger bird community who are not professional ornithologists or students in that bird academic world to follow along, even participate, which is which is pretty cool. I've said this many times. I will continue to say it again and again. I think ornithology is a scientific discipline that is so unique in that amateur community scientists like many of us out there are frequently engaged in the work that bird researchers are doing such that this academic conference is actually kind of interesting to us. Ornithology and astronomy seem to me to be the only professional hard science disciplines that have such buy-in from the associated sort of hobby community. There's frequently a lot of interaction. The work that all of the scientists do has a direct impact on our hobby, not just in terms of taxonomy and splits and lumps and obvious stuff like that, but also, you know, active conservation initiatives and in hobby birders, ornithologists doing work on bird populations have this community of cheap or free labor to do surveys that are admittedly variably robust, but that is sort of what the Christmas bird count and the breeding bird survey and indeed eBird are at least sort of theoretically meant to do. And of course, for someone like me, who is always looking for interesting bird people to talk to on this very podcast, this content beast that is never satiated, it is a great opportunity to find guests. So anyone who attended NAOC this year, if you saw a program that was particularly interesting and you would like to send that person my way, I thank you for that. But you know, I, I put the word out on Twitter and I got a few ideas back, but I'm always on the lookout for more. As I said, I have a lot of shows to fill and I always like to have interesting people to fill them with. One of the things I was a little disappointed about, though, was the promised statement on bird names that the American Ornithological Society claimed was coming at the end of the conference. Uh, we did not hear any plans to that end. At the time that I am recording this podcast, I've still not heard anything. I'm not going to go too much into that issue aside from just, you know, noting my surprise that they didn't follow through. I think I'll leave this for the This Month in Birding panel next week to dig a little bit deeper, but that was also a thing that happened, or rather didn't happen. I do hope, however, that the AOS sticks with some version of this online conference in future years once this pandemic is behind us and we can meet together again. There is something lost by the lack of like a meet and greet situations for online festivals and meetings. I do think a lot gets accomplished in those sorts of situations. And I certainly miss, uh, miss them just because I like hanging out and talking birds with people, but not everyone can or wants to travel. And while this pandemic has been trying for all of us, and as someone whose kids are plotting into online learning this week, I am more conscious of that now than I have been since this thing started. Uh, there are certainly aspects of this pandemic life that I hope will continue beyond this, and I think this should be one of them. On the show this week, I have another Cedar Waxwing story from a listener. This time, Chris Ortega of Bay Point, California, sends a story about finding joy in the mundane with waxwings and children. But first, the American Birding Association Field Guide to the Birds of Hawaii is perhaps the most 
comprehensive field guide to the Aloha State published in some time, and arguably the one state-specific guide from the ABA series that birders from any part of North America will want in their library. I, I know, I know, I wrote the Carolinas one if you live in Idaho and you want to purchase that, I certainly thank you, but I do also question why you would want it. But the Hawaii one, boy, it's amazing. With photos by Jack Jeffrey and written by Helen and Andre Rain, it is a wonderful introduction to the extraordinary bird life of the islands. And Helen and Andre join me to talk about it. Stay tuned. After the interview, we're going to give away six copies of the guide to listeners. Thanks to George Scott of Scott and Nick's for those. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the second week of August, 2020. August continues to be a good booby month. Please keep your giggles to yourself. Don't make me come over there. We talked about Missouri's first brown booby last time. Now Washington gets its first record of a Nazca booby flying over Puget Sound near Seattle last week, becoming the last state or province on the Pacific coast to document this species. Nazca booby has exploded in the ABA area in recent years. It was only in 2014 that the ABA's first living record of Nazca booby was documented in Southern California. In the last six years, nearly two dozen other records have occurred as far north as Alaska. I think this might be the first species ever added to the ABA checklist as a code four rather than a code five. Uh, Nazca booby breeds primarily on the Galapagos Islands, but also as far north as the Revilla Hijedo Islands of Mexico. Those are southwest of the southern tip of the Baja Peninsula, uh, the largest and most famous of which is Socorro. I think it's safe to assume that's where most of these birds are coming from. That wasn't the only booby of note. I'm serious, guys. Keep it together. A red-footed booby in Vernon Parish, Louisiana, is the first inland record of a species that has only been recorded in that state three times previously. And in North Carolina, sadly, non-booby news, an Antillian nighthawk has been calling near the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse in Dare County for a few days last week, quite possibly a late Hurricane Isaiah's waif as the Bahamas, where the species is common, is a straight shot south of Cape Hatteras. This was the third record for North Carolina, but the first in almost 30 years. Those are the highlights for the week. As always, for a more complete look at all the rare birds seen across the U.S. and Canada, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org slash rba. You can also go to our Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.com slash groups slash aba rare or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Birders on the mainland of the U.S. and Canada have no shortage of options when it comes to field guides, but our friends in Hawaii, home of some of the world's most spectacular birds, have not had such luxuries. And now that Hawaii is included in the ABA area, interest in the islands among birders is high, and the need for a good field guide is definitely dire. Uh, Helen and Andre Rain have created just that guide, along with photographer Jack Jeffrey, published as part of the American Birding Association series of field guides earlier this year. Uh, Helen and Andre are with me here to talk about it. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here. You both have been living and birding in Hawaii for many years. Uh, what was the field guide situation like before you began? What was the need there? Um, well, there there were several bird guides that were available, but um, they're fairly out of date, um, mm. particularly the phot photographic guides. And so, you know, it, it seemed pretty clear that there was a need for a, a new um, revised photographic field guide for these islands. 
and, and, and not only the fact that the status of the Hawaiian native birds have changed so much over the years, but there's so many introduced species that people are going to be wanting to to identify as well. Have you seen the numbers of introduced species, those populations changing over the time that you have been living in Hawaii? Yeah, I think some of the uh, some of the introduced birds are really increasing. And, uh, you know, that's what especially visitors um, tend to focus on when they come. Because <laughs> the first things they see yeah <laughs> yeah and around their hotels they're gonna see you know cardinals and minor birds and so that's that kind of experience of birding in hawaii so, and the parakeets have been increasing dramatically really? as well oh. um so it was really to the part of the the point of writing the book was to tell people more about those birds that they were seeing um but also let them in on some of the secrets of the native birds that maybe people miss out on yeah. Have you seen an interest in just Hawaiian birds and Hawaiian birding increasing in the past few years? I think so. Yeah. I think people are really starting to recognize that how unique the ecosystems are here and just what a special place it is to come and bird. And you can see native birds if you know what you're looking for everywhere from, you know, golf courses right up to those really inaccessible places in the Alakai Swamp of Kauai, for example. And mm -hmm. I think there is definitely increased interest in finding out more about these birds that evolved before humans ever arrived and then continued to coexist with them um, once the Polynesians found the islands and then once Europeans arrived as well. You both work pretty extensively in conservation. Obviously, conservation of Hawaiian bird life is you know, sort of at a critical point. Does it help to have a guide like this available to people who may not be able to even see these birds anytime soon. I, I think it's yeah, I think it's critical because you know it just it just awakens people to the idea of what these species are and also what the threats are. And you know, a lot of people a lot of people just don't understand um, the critical situation the birds are in and why they're in. And, and it's there's simple things like you know these birds have evolved without um, introduced predators, for example, mm -hmm. and um, species like cats and rats and understanding those the impacts of those species might might make people more aware of the situation and more willing to help protect the birds in the long run. Yeah, is there anything that people on the mainland can do to help support Hawaiian birds? I know it feels so far away, but you know, Hawaii is an American state. All the conservation organizations work with the American government, the National Park Service is over there, the Fish and Wildlife Service, all these uh, organizations that we may be completely familiar with, uh, those of us who live on the mainland. What do mainland birders need to know about Hawaiian birds and Hawaiian bird conservation? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that people can do. I mean, one of the one of the most important things to do, which is obviously a bit difficult in the, the current COVID crisis, but we're hoping in the future people will come and try and see these birds, um, especially uh, some of the rarer birds. And, and while they're doing that, make a contribution to, to conservation organizations that support them. You know, each island um, has a, a forest bird project so on Kauai. We have the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project, for example. And so if you went up into Kokei and, you know, got to see some of those rarer birds, it's always great to make a contribution to an organization like that. Um, and I think this is part of a wider conversation that we're having in, in Hawaii generally about what we want tourism to look like in the future. We've got this unique situation where there's almost no tourists and people are really starting to, to think about how we can manage tourism in the future so that we can protect all these pretty fragile natural resources that can't really handle a large number of people. Um, so to try and have a tourism that works kind of hand in hand with 
with protecting some of the things that people really appreciate in the islands, the absolute spectacular natural beauty and all the creatures that that depend on that and depend on a kind of intact ecosystem, not one that's overrun with invasive trees and plants and, and animals. When I think of Hawaii, obviously the first thing I think of are the are the birds there, but I'm I'm a birder. Uh, for the vast majority of people, it's golf and beaches, and those are things that, you know, you, as you say, those are overrun with invasives. Those are primarily, you know, heavily utilized resources. Um, how do you change what the residents of Hawaii value? That's got to be a really interesting conversation. Yeah, that's definitely something that we're thinking hard about at the minute because you do start to see, you know, it's all anecdotal, but we are seeing more mm-hmm. reef fish, for example, and clearer water. And they've been doing some studies mm-hmm. in Hanauma Bay about that. Um, and so, yeah, trying to find a way to to just manage that better is is the way forward. And I think when people are thinking about visiting Hawaii, they can always ask hotels some of the questions like, you know, do you try and keep your lights dim? Do you um, prevent feral cats from being on your property? Because a lot of those coastal properties are near shearwater colonies, for example, wedge-chilled shearwater. So if you have glaring bright lights um, and a lot of feral cats around, then you're essentially direct, directly contributing to those populations going down, um, whereas hotels can make a positive impact by helping to support those colonies by doing predator control and um you know, protecting them in all, all the different ways that they can. So it's worth having that conversation with the hotels because that lets the head hotels know that the people who are visiting care about that kind of thing. And those hotels and golf courses also provide important habitat for water birds, for example. You know, it's hmm. pretty amazing when you're in some of these areas and you see Hawaiian moorhens or coots or nene walking across these sort of manicured lawns. And these are <laughs> some of the rarest water birds in the world, but like extremely yeah. accessible for people to see and at the same time, extremely accessible for species like feral cats to, to kill. Yeah. Um, you know, one of, my, one of my colleagues who edits the birding magazine, uh, Ted Floyd, they, we did a, an ABA trip to Hawaii last year. And one of the things he was amazed about were the white terns that are just like nesting in these trees and the intersections of Honolulu. It's just you think of this 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 classic bird of, of nature documentaries set in Hawaii. And here it is with the roundabouts and the cars going around them. It's pretty fascinating the way that some of those birds are able to sort of adapt to these sort of more utilized by human areas. Yeah, it's it's funny. Like our, our first um, real contact with a, you know, a rare native Hawaiian species when we first arrived here, you know, you read a lot about the nene and the amazing comeback that that species mm-hmm. has had from brink of extinction. And there we are in the sort of parking lot of Costco getting our trolley to go into Costco and these nene fly over. And we're like, what the? <laughs> that, those are nene. <laughs> you realize cool. how close they are to Canada geese when you see them walking across the, the golf course. <laughs> right, like yeah, honking at you. So you included the the Hawaiian language names for a lot of these birds, including those that I didn't realize even had Hawaiian names. How frequently are those names used? I think that is something that's really on the rise. It's a recognition that, um, you know, these birds did coexist with the Hawaiian people for a long time. And having respect for those cultural links is really important, especially if we want local people to be involved in in conserving them, that, you know, we've got to make that connection. So I feel like that's on the rise and it's only going to increase. And actually, wherever possible, we try and, we try and use those names. I work a lot on water birds and 
we try and refer to um, to them by the Hawaiian names. And we we really wanted to stress the importance of that, um, you know, in this book. And so we did get a uh, Kumu Sebra Kauka, who's a amazing Hawaiian cultural practitioner who works here on Kauai and is a huge supporter of um, conservation on these islands to, you know, talk about the importance of Hawaiian birds um, to the Polynesians and, and, and the Hawaiian people. Yeah. And uh, we just, we really think that sort of, you know, it is a really strong and important connection that everyone needs to remember. Yeah, I, I saw that. That was one of my favorite parts of the book. And I know that these ABA field guides have sort of a cookie cutter quality uh, to them. And I, I think that's to their credit. I mean, they're all part of a series, obviously. Um, but the, the fact that you were able to add some of that sort of cultural information in there, because, you know, Hawaii is so unique in the fact that, you know, its indigenous peoples are such a huge part of the culture there. Um, to be able to add those names is is really cool. How do they come up with some of them for introduced species, though? Um, yeah, I think they went through a process of um, looking at what people had, had just been calling them anecdotally. And my, my daughter went to a Hawaiian group called Tutu and Me, which um, is basically like preschool education. And they would sing about the um, minor bird and they called it the noisy trash eating bird. And that's, <laughs> that's how it was translated into. Oh, the- that's a little mean. Yeah. <laughs> mean but fair. Translated yeah, into that's Hawaiian. True. And then even where they'd where the names of Hawaiian birds have been lost, you know, they don't know what they were anymore. They went through a process mm-hmm. of working with Hawaiian cultural practitioners to find the right um, alternative and, and still be able to give the birds a Hawaiian name. And for me, the, the, the stories that the Hawaiians had, you know, the explanations of how the Hawaiian common gallinule got its its red frontal shield because it stole fire from the gods and then it was branded. Hmm. There's, there are dozens of stories like that, and they're a great way to introduce kids to native Hawaiian birds, and they're just they're just a really wonderful way to make the birds, you know, even more special and unique when you're talking about them. So, I definitely encourage people to dive into all those Hawaiian legends. They're really fascinating. Yeah, and and one that comes to mind immediately when you talk about a bird that had its name lost but sort of regiven was a uh, kiwi kiu. Uh, you're formerly known, it's still, I think, on the ABA checklist as Maui Parabill, but uh, the process in which it was given an official Hawaiian name um, not that long ago was actually a pretty fascinating thing. And I and I think super important for as, you know, a lot of those other honeycreepers have Hawaiian names. Yeah. And, you know, it just shows that some of them were, were really remote, even for the Hawaiians and uh mm-hmm. Perhaps only yeah. a small handful of people knew about them. If they were deep, deep in, in um, one particular part of the habitat, there probably weren't that many people that knew about them, even in Hawaiian times. Did working on this book create any opportunities to sort of think about these birds or their welfare in ways that you might not have done so before? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I feel like we know most of the major threats and challenges for these birds, and Actually, what we're lacking is enough resources to do something about them. So, you know, mm-hmm. with, with the native um, Hawaiian honeycreepers, avian malaria is just devastating. And there is a really big push to to try and find a solution to that. But it just requires a huge amount of resources and resources are perhaps uh, not equally doled out across the whole of the USA. And I think yeah. Hawaii has maybe traditionally been a bit underfunded there. So... I think it just underlined for us that we have a huge number of endangered species and a large amount of needs. And the more resources we can capture here, the better, really, because there's a massive amount of work to do. Do you have any really great experiences that you could share with 
any of Hawaii's native birds, be they, I don't know, be they the honey creepers, be they seabirds, whatever. Do you have any sort of like just just a memory that you have that just seems sort of quintessentially Hawaiian? I mean, for me, I think, you know, I, I spent a lot of time working with our endangered seabirds out here. So the annual shearwater and the Hawaiian petrel and the band rum storm petrel. And um, you, working with these species because of all the threats that they've faced, they're now pushed into the sort of most remote parts of the island. So these mm. sort of mist enshrouded um, near inaccessible mountain ridges. And and they come in at night because, uh, you know, they're, they're out at sea right. during the day. And you sort of sit there in this um, aluhe fern covered slope with the ohia trees around you, and it's it's dark, and um, you know the sun is set, and you're by yourself because we 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 operate in teams of two, and we're sort of d- apart from each other. And then you just hear the first Hawaiian petrel calling as it as it's coming in with that sort of call. Um, and then you know then the brain call of the newels kicks in, and then through the darkness, this sort of uh, one of these two birds, like let's say a new Sherwood will just come barreling out of nowhere and land, <laughs> you know, in the bushes. And uh, and I've been fortunate enough to have them land right next to me and they sort of land and there's this sort of momentary pause while they take stock of where they are and they'll sort of glance over at you and then completely ignore you. Um, and then just sort of shuffle off to their burrows. And it's not, you know, it really doesn't encapsulate everything because you've got this extremely rare species that's clinging on um, in these remote areas. Um, and has been doing this for forever, you know. It's, it's, it, in the past, the skies have been darkened with these birds, and now they're coming in on a trickle. And it's 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 sort of very special to be in these areas where pretty much no one goes and and be with these birds that are so rare. And 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 it does give you hope for the future because we do know what the threats are that are facing them all now, and uh, we've got many of the tools in which to help protect them. And it's just putting all of that into practice and, and reversing these pretty devastating population trends. Yeah, and then for me, um, I've been lucky enough to work with the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project, and um, they will they go out in small teams, and you'll hike kind of deep, deep into the into the Alakai Swamp and beyond, and gradually all the invasive species fall behind, and it's just this magical native forest with trees laden with furry moss and all sorts of endemic plants all around you um and then they, they've done an awful lot of work um monitoring some of the rarest bird populations so puyohi akikiki akikee um they'll be catching those birds and it's it, when you put up a net and and catch a puyohi that is a really exciting moment for anybody so just a really rare treat to get out there into the alakai and um and see and handle some of those birds do you have any experiences with birds that are no longer here? Any extinct birds? We have not um, experienced those extinctions, but Jack Jeffries, um, the mm-hmm. photographer, um, he has, you know, he's worked in Hawaii for decades and he's personally experienced, I think he said five of um, the birds that he's photographed going extinct. And that is a pretty shocking thing yeah. to hear um, when you talk to him. So, yeah, I think the way he celebrates and appreciates the birds through his photographs is definitely part of that. He knows how precious they are and how easily they're lost. And some of these species, they're you know they're they're still not even listed as extinct because they've basically gone mm-hmm. extinct in recent times. And the you know you watch these birds dropping off at the you know the Pua Uli in Maui that was two thousand and four. Um, so these are all like, you know, just a couple of decades ago, there were many more species here and now they're gone. And, and we look at some of these other species that are just clinging on and you just wonder, you know, what, what is the, in, in the next few decades, what are we going to lose? 
Um, but then on the flip side, there's these positive stories like the, you know, the Alala, the Hawaiian crow and the, the release of that species. And it's, it's been a, a difficult process for that project team, but th there are now Alala uh, back in the wild um, where they haven't been for a hundred years. So there's hope um, in amongst all this too. And the Nene are the poster child for just the most fantastic Absolutely. recovery. Yeah. You know, they were down to 50 birds in the 1950s. Now there's 3,000 across the state. And like we said, you know, you imagine seeing them for the first time, having come from England in some amazing setting, and then they're in Costco. So <laughs> it's nice that it was that mundane. Yeah, that is good. Yeah, I was gonna just going to ask you, are they making any sort of uh, progress on the avian malaria, the avian pox uh, issue. I had talked to someone a couple of years ago about perhaps using genetic engineering to engineer some some mosquitoes that could not breed. Um, is there any you know progress being made on any of that? Yeah, so um, they are working really hard. There's a working group in the state um, that is focused solely on that issue. And what they're mm -hmm. looking at at the moment is actually introducing a bacteria that is found naturally in mosquitoes, um, so that makes them sterile um, yeah. and you know, they then can't reproduce and you've got populations going down. But it's it is challenging because you have to know where the mosquitoes are breeding. You have to know where they're coming from. And it's going to be a localized effect. You know, you're not going to take out mosquitoes mm -hmm. across the whole of the island. And it's also got to you've got to keep doing it. So there's a lot of challenges to overcome there. And some of the birds are maybe showing some signs of resistance um, but others are definitely really struggling with avian malaria. And we've been in Hawaii for 10 years now, and we've seen, for example, EEV, we used to see quite easily at the parking lot when you went into Kokei, uh, once you get up, got up to the, the higher altitudes, and that's not possible anymore. You've really got to, to get into the Alakai Swamp to see them. So, yeah, yeah it we can't come up with a solution quickly enough, basically. And that's, of course, yeah. coupled with uh, climate change because, you know, the area that the, that was too cold for the mosquitoes to, to live in, uh, particularly on Kauai, is just diminishing as temperatures rise. And, you know, there's going to come a point where these refuges um, on some of these islands where the birds have been able to exist um, because there weren't mosquitoes spreading avian malaria is very rapidly disappearing. Um, and I, we've seen that, you know, even up in the mountains and the areas we work, now we're starting to get bitten in the night by mosquitoes mm -hmm. when we would never have seen them before. So that's kind of alarming. It just kind of underlines the, the necessity for dealing with this issue way, way sooner rather than later, because, you know, by the time you get to later, those birds are gone. Thank you so much, Helen and Andre. The ABA Field Guide to Birds of Hawaii is available now on the ABA website at Beautio Books, any other online booksellers who don't need me to advertise for them, but do have a uh, very popular name. Uh, congratulations on the book and uh, mahalo to both of you. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate your time. So I have six copies of the new ABA Field Guide to Birds of Hawaii. I am excited to give away. Thanks again, George Scott, Scott and Nick's for these books. These six copies will go to the first six listeners who can answer this question. So there are four species of bird that breed natively in Hawaii that are also native breeders in the ABA's home state of Delaware. So native breeders not introduced to Hawaii like northern cardinal or wild turkey. All four species have a Hawaiian native subspecies that is currently considered conspecific with the mainland subspecies by the AOS. That's the authority I'm going with here. But all four currently breed both in Hawaii and Delaware. There is a 
fifth that no longer breeds in Hawaii. Um, that one does not count. We're just going with the four that currently breed in Hawaii and Delaware. You can send those answers to me at podcast at aba.org. Put Hawaii in the subject line. Even if you're not in the first six, I'll tell you if you're right or wrong, and I'll give the answers next week. Here's Chris Ortega. A little over a week after my wife had delivered our second child, I figured I'd take our toddler son out with me and give her a morning to sleep in as much as the baby would allow. Our first stop was Jiffy Lube for an oil change, but I didn't want to just sit in the lobby with him watching TV, especially not with a canal and the Iron Horse Trail close by. With the car in queue, we went out for a little walk. We didn't really see anything I would call exciting for a while, but then I'm not a three-year-old. He held back none of his fascination when we got to the two adjacent bridges, one for cars and one for people, running over the canal. If that wasn't his favorite part of our morning stroll, it was probably the water itself. One of the best things about having children is being able to experience their wonder with them. And though the canal was devoid of birds, my son shouted and pointed with joy, just because it's water. As we were on our way back to the shop, it was my turn to be childish. There was a flock of little passerines squealing away in a few trees in the Sam's Club parking lot. As soon as I heard them, I picked up the pace to try to see who was making the ruckus. Still being the new birder that I was, I couldn't tell what they were, only that they were something new. As I watched closely, I saw their sleek little crests pointing back and up, just like I might fashion my boy's hair for a bathtime laugh. I also noticed they were crazy about berries, another similarity to the kid. Speaking of him, while he also wanted to take a look at the birdies initially, his patience quickly wore thin as I tried again and again to get an identifiable photo with my cell phone. Was that last cute squeak from the birds or the boy? In short order, he made it clear it was time to move on. My field guide would later teach me, those canopy cuties are called cedar waxwings. But in that moment, an even cuter creature needed my attention. One whose wonder of the world I hope to never stop learning from or emulating. Thank you so much, Chris. That was really great. If you'd like to send me a waxwing story of your own, record it in the voice memo app on your phone. Send it to podcast at aba.org. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources that the ABA provides, please consider joining the ABA. You'll get our magazine, you can get discounts to our partners, and you get my great appreciation for noting this podcast is one of the reasons why you did it. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. Speaking of, I want to make a shout out to... Deborah Aspel of Tucson, Arizona, Stuart Oxenhorn of Flemington, New Jersey, Nick Watmo of Norwich, UK, and Alex Burke of Cleveland Heights, Ohio, all of whom joined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much for that and welcome, or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who notes that when signing up for the NAOC, please do not confuse it with the North American Orienteering Championships. And don't try to explain it to him by noting that you just got lost, because that's the sort of thing that they do not look kindly on. Technical production is by John Lowry, who can state from experience that you will get awfully blue if you mistake the NAOC with the network algorithm for ocean color, at least until they tell you otherwise. 
Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who were sort of confused when they ended up with the Netherlands Antilles Olympic Committee, but are excited to be suiting up for badminton for Tokyo 2021. You can find us online at ABA.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. While my talk on the wonders of total ticks evidently wasn't academic enough for a slot at the North American Ornithological Conference, I did find a friendly audience at the National Association of Counties, and I finally found someone interested in my long slog to 100 species in Alamance County. There just aren't enough reservoirs. I can't get ducks. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.